Hello and welcome back to Ness and Dormer, your one stop for everything football in the 80s and 90s. We are continuing our look at the European Championships of 1988, 35 years ago this summer. And I welcome back Gary Naylor. How are you, Gary? I'm very well, Martin. I hope you are too. I am indeed. The sun is shining. Hi, Rob. Rob Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I well, think we should stop our... In the spirit of time, I think we stuck on these emergency pods, you know. I keep seeing that flash <laughs> up on my podcast app and thinking we're doing something from 35 years ago. It's not exactly... <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. It's quite all right. Um, we're going to go and look, I'll take a deep dive into the opening round of um, fixtures, those those um, first match days for all eight of these European Championship sides. And okay, let's start at the very top then, shall we? Friday the 10th of June 1988 as the host West Germany kick off against Italy. Two big names in international football, Gary. I think that's probably fair to say. But the two youngest squads in the tournament, uh, I will give you the teams and there are some household names now, um, but possibly not uh, in the summer of 1988. West Germany started with Emil um, Herget, who I think we'll speak uh, a wee bit more of um, throughout this um, podcast. Jürgen Kohler, Buchwald, Bertol, Pierre Lebarski, Lothar Matthias, Olaf Ton, Andres Bremer, Rudy Voller, Jürgen Klinsmann. Um, Italy, uh, Walter Zengo, uh, sorry, Zenga, you've got Baresi, Bergami, Ferry, a young Paolo Maldini, Donadoni, Di Napoli, um, the Roma playmaker, um, Giuseppe Giannini, Carlo Ancelotti, and um, Sampdoria's Roberto Mancini and Gianluca Vialli up front. Names that kind of trip off the tongue now, as I said, Gary, but um, for the casual viewer in 1988, a lot of introductions there. Yeah, and you, you kind of see this most markedly when the, the camera on some of the highlights videos, and they spend an enormous amount of time on kind of pre-match ceremonies and kind of Helmut Kohl shaking hands with the German team and anthems and all, all of this. And the camera pans down the line as it tends to do these days, although it wasn't quite as commonplace then. And the Italians in particular all look so young. You know, there's Viali with this great mop of curly hair. <laughs> Mancini looking like kind of someone's AI'd Mancini into being sort of 18 years old. And Maldini, who looks like a god as usual, but looks like a very young god rather than the, the one that we came to know. Um, the Germans don't look quite as, as fresh-faced, but it is, you know, the, the kind of, the, the fancy team because of the home team and, you know, you can't write off the Germans. And an Italian team who are getting ready in some ways for Italia 90 to come and were kind of investing in youth and, you know, had they been English, it would be golden generation and young lions are going to roar and all of this. And what, what emerged was a game that was, Contrary, I think, to the expectations that you might have of kind of carefree youth and so on, was quite a tight game decided by two goals scored in quick succession, one of which was was uh, a bit of a portent of, of things to come. Uh, but I guess we'll get on to that later. I mean, Rob, did you did you were you struck by just how young those Italians looked in particular? Yeah, I suppose particularly it's the obvious point, but the players we particularly 
growing up with his managers. Yeah. So Ancelotti is an obvious one. Some of the players are kind of frozen in time. Like I can't remember the last time I saw Ricardo Ferry. So goodness yeah. knows where he looks like now. Um, but no, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The um, the teams, just the, the contrast. Germany play a classical 3-5-2 with a sweeper. Italy, inspired partly, I guess, by Sacchio. I don't know whether Vicini played this way before when they won the Under-21 tournament. But they play a kind of 4-4-1-1, 4-4-2, but sort of with a sweeper. And this is one thing I want to say about this tournament, actually, is that there are so many um, parts of it that are seen as innovations now in modern football. But actually, if they, they were around then. They just probably weren't talked about as much. There wasn't much analysis and so on. So you've got so many teams in this tournament who have a sweeper or or play a back four and have a sort of sweeper who goes into midfield. So you've got Kuman and Baresi and Herget, at least in theory. Um Kuznetsov, obviously, who might not know from Rangers. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, Kuman in particular, it's good. Well, we'll come to the Netherlands, obviously, but I just find it fascinating how often he's just walking into midfield. Um even though there's actually only one centre back, you would you would think of that as a kind of courageous Guardiola tactic, which it is. But actually, it was reasonably common. And just a, another point on that is, it's a kind of paradox that this there's a lot of talk of defensive play for the tournament and caution, but most of the teams have what look now to be really attacking formations. Like there's barely mm-hmm. a defensive midfielder in sight in most of the teams. Um, so for even Germany, you know, all right, they're playing a back three to a sweeper, but the midfield is Matthias. And in two schemas, Litbarski and Olaf Ton, which you would never get that balance midfield now. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, watching the games, I'll just jump in if I may, Martin, because uh, you know the the idea of overloads that gets talked about quite a lot. But you can see it even in highlights packages, overlapping fullbacks, even the underlapping fullback coming inside for the ball that's played inside the opposition uh, fullback. Maldini seems to be having shots on goal uh, plenty of times in, in this match. So, you know, in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, albeit that I suspect it's much more of a strategy now than something that happens slightly on the on the hoof then, where a Koeman would see his opportunity yes, to move into midfield and take it, rather than it being kind of created or, and anticipated by the movement of the other players around him. What I would say the difference I know, so I don't know if you agree with this, is the pace of the play was a lot yeah, slower, yeah. with the exception of the first 20 minutes of Isla Dingler, which was almost comically <laughs> frantic. But um, yeah, that was probably the biggest difference. But anyway, sorry, Martin. No, I, I th- that was what I was going to ask um, about, really, because there are a few things here that, 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 that I have not seen this game probably in, in, in that kind of depth uh, at all. I've, I've seen parts of it. Um, but the Tempo, tempo of really all the the, the games I've I've watched in um, in preparation, apart from the game you mentioned, um, really chimes with with a, it was a bit of a cliche at the time. More, more time in the ball in international football, more time in the yeah, ball in Europe. Exactly. A, a player, if if you if you're a British midfielder with any touch whatsoever, um, you know if you if you went to the continent, he'd, he'd enjoy it a lot more. He got a lot more, a lot more time in the ball there. Um, you certainly do. It's it's walking football at times. A um, couple of other cliches from the age, or things that seem from a from a different uh, different time. The play acting is <laughs> award winning. Uh, 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 there's some there's some hefty tackles getting in there, and I appreciate why the the, the laws had to change. Um, but but this is something that that would 
be more famous, I think, two years later in um, in the World Cup in Italy, especially in that final. The the, the rolling Germans, indeed. Um, uh, the, the, the seed was sown there. Um, and guys, I suppose, um, which was very typical, I think, of the day, maybe not so much now, the opening game of the tournament, tense as, as all hell. Um, you really couldn't afford to to, to lose you're really up against it if you did <clears throat> and that, that that's how that game that game looked and in my memory how all opening games of of, of tournaments seem to be with so uh, much especially when it's the hosts and it, yes because i know the world cup had changed it was the holders that kind of started but that that, that host nation think of italy a couple of years later um against against austria um just so much pressure, so much expectation, mm. so much hype. Um, and I think we spoke about the preview of these international tournaments getting hyped and hyped and hyped as each one kind of um, um, moves on. Yeah, and I think a really important point about that, I completely agree, is that the World Cup by this stage had gone to 2014. So you had third place kind of yeah, safety yeah. net, which wasn't here in this tournament, but also in this no. tournament, it's 18, not 16. So it's a really high quality tournament. You know, Euro 96. When England, for example, drew with Switzerland in the opening game, it wasn't a great result, but equally it wasn't the end of the world. Um, even teams could... I mean, you could come back and qualify in theory, but it was really important because you were not... I mean, there were, as it turned out, a couple of easy teams in this tournament. <laughs> One of them not really expected to be, but generally you had to... Yeah, if you lost the first game, you knew you were in big trouble. And that manifests in this game. Just got very quickly... Sorry, Gary, we'll come to the goals, but it's really interesting that towards the end... Um, the game ends one all, which I guess people know, but Italy bring on a sub with about 30 seconds to go. Italy probably with a slightly better team, but by that point, Vicini's thinking, right, no messing around. And Trevor Francis on the ATV commentary, I thought it was really interesting, kind of educates the viewers by saying, well, this might look unusual, but this is what they do in Italy. They bring on subs to waste a bit of time. And I just, I think that kind of, there were little snapshots throughout these games and throughout the tournament of that kind of naivety towards, particularly towards. Well, yeah, towards continental football, I guess. I just thought that was yeah. really interesting. France is really explaining it. Mind you, I mean, now it's the most obvious thing in the world, obviously. It um, was, it yeah. was, it stood out a mile. It was, it was as if he was yeah. explaining kind of forensic medicine or something like that. But he kind of was you, in those days. You he won't understand why they're doing this, but, but let me tell you because I've played in Italy and I, I, I know. Yeah. Um, sorry, Gary. Well, just a, a couple of points I didn't want to lose because I was thinking about, um, you know, the first game because when it comes to England, Ireland, there's an awful lot of talk about it being critical and got to get off to the right start, long way back if you lose the first one. But actually the winners of the tournament did lose the first one, as we'll come on to later. And I think Argentina lost the first game of the World Cup, didn't they, in you think? recently? And I think... <laughs> you forgot that already. I have to Google. I have to Google anything that's within the last ten years, um, <laughs> the fair, last fair. thirty years or, or later, uh, uh, earlier. I don't. Um, but I think there's been other tournaments where you know the the hosts have got off to a slow start and, and got to the final. So I, I wondered whether that was one of those assertions that didn't entirely stand up to. Uh, analysis. Um, I say I'm, I'm always happy to be proved wrong by remembering something from 35 years ago and 35 minutes ago and forgetting everything in between. I think you're, I think you're right up to a point. I mean, clearly it's not impossible. I mean, even um, we'll come to this, but after the England game, Bobby Robson is immediately citing 86 when they lost to Portugal in their first mm. big game and end up reaching quarter zone. But clearly it does leave you in it. Particularly, I do think I think these days you can almost afford it. I mean, Spain lost their first game in 2010, didn't they? And yeah. at no stage did anyone think they weren't going to go through 
and probably win the thing. Um, but I, I do think, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Ultimately, the team that won it lost the first game. But I don't know. I just feel like it, it was certainly, you're right. It was a very powerful receive wisdom. And it was talk about it before the game. I mean, Beckenbauer's talking about Italy's counter-attacking and how what was it, we can't afford to run onto an open knife, was a phrase he used. Um, Lacey, David Lacey in the garden, says, even the managers appear to convince themselves it will be goalless. So there was almost an acceptance <laughs> of that. Although Italy yeah. actually, I thought, I don't, Italy were quite bright, I thought. Germany was so nervous. West Germany was so nervous. The tone was kind of set after about 10 seconds when a yeah. dodgy pass from Matthias Herget, the sweeper, um, led to a chance for someone. I think it might be Janini, a shot that was going wide anyway, but him all pushed it wide. And that just set us up for a really jittery performance, particularly from him, but also from the, the whole team, which probably ties in what you said. Um, but, and yet, even, yeah, maybe you're right, actually, Gary, because ultimately West Germany would fancy themselves to beat Spain and Denmark. Subsequently, so who cares for totally But but obviously, so much about morale and everything else. So I can understand it. Running onto a knife sounds. So I just going to say, running onto a knife sounds very sort of Italian, very sort of rude way that, of that going. It's an excellent you, phrase. I, I just want to say one other thing that we, I was going to say. Just want to say one other thing that um, that we mentioned sort of in passing, and that was about the the acting because. When the halftime whistle blows, the referee is, give, is being given the benefit of significant advice from the uh, German players. And that referee, uh, looking exactly like a kind of maths teacher who's uh, getting a bit annoyed with some over-enthusiastic uh, parents at a, at a parents' evening, is, is Keith Hackett, of course, who's, um, who's either was yeah. king of VAR or, or is king of VAR, but is still sort of um, a go-to guy when it comes to uh, refereeing. And, I mean, he's having he's having kind of none of it. But um, it's interesting that it, that it was a, a kind of British referee who is referred to in the, in the German language um, commentating that uh, I was listening to. My schoolboy German isn't too bad when I've got the pictures to actually help me. And, um, yeah, they, they, they make very clear references to Hackett's nationality. I promise you that. Of course, they do after 74 as well. Jack Taylor, what was it back about yeah. you are an Englishman when he gave the penalty? Yeah. <laughs> um, Rob, we talked about these um, household names who are household names now, um, but maybe weren't then. Um, Matthias Herget isn't. There's maybe a good reason. No. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was checking the World Soccer Preview again, and they talk quite highly about it. So it'd be about 32 by this stage. At that point, obviously, I think we said before, the, the Sweep was such an iconic position in German football. Alcantara had gone after 86, and I'm not entirely sure why. He reappears in 89, and they tried a couple of others. Um, but, yeah, World Soccer talks about him being superbly skillful. Um, and who else? Yeah, they tried Thomas Horster, and they tried Holger Fack after, and never heard of. Alcantara and Dietmar Jakobs have been the sweeps at 86. But, yeah, Herger, I mean, he's just a bag of nerves. I mean, there's so many clearances. One yeah. Clearance, yeah. Um, I mean, we, I've only seen the highlights. I thought it'd be a bit much to watch the entire game of every, every of the entire tournament. <laughs> but he did look really nervous, and the reports are really critical as well. Um, and they, even I found a um, a contemporary German report and did a cursory bit of Google translating. It was basically like Matthias, what are we going to do with you? Was the kind of opening line. Um, <laughs> so and then, yeah, I, he kind of symbolised that performance really. Um, and it was interesting to see he actually he survives. I wondered if he might have been binned after this, but he survives the tournament pretty much. Um, but yeah, funny enough, he's had one of only I think two players who were changed for the side that were going to win Italian 90. The other one being the goalkeeper, 
it will change to Ilgner. And then you have a few little tweaks in midfield, but that was kind of more mm. a squad rotation. So, yeah, he does stand out both at the time for his nervousness, but also historically. He was the one player in my kind of, not my ears pricked up, I kind of thought, I know nothing about this guy. I need to have a quick look. Um, but he did have he did have a great reputation at the time. Oh, I think he played for Erdogan, which I think, by the way, as well, in the last podcast, I was convinced Erdogan, not Labour, who's won the UEFA Cup, but that's another story. Um, he'd been in like Team of the Year and stuff a few times, albeit yeah, earlier yeah. in the 80s. He, got, he won like 30-odd caps, which in those days is quite a lot, worth about 60 now. And ironically, probably the oldest player on the team, most experienced, but it just looked too much for him, didn't it? Yeah, really, really, really did. Sorry, I, I just want to ask a question, and this might be as much for the listeners as it is for the three of us. Um, I was looking at the German side, and Helmut Kohl is you know, shaking hands and everything, and they do look nervous, and they then they play nervously, especially sort of early on, as you've indicated. We're, we're only, you know, it's a tournament in Germany, and we're only that just over 12 months away from reunification, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which you know, appeared at the time to come out of absolutely nowhere. Um, but maybe there was sort of shifting sands in German identity, and maybe there was a, a sense that became much clearer when Germany had the World Cup in, what was it, 2006, the, the German yes. World Cup, is that right? Um, but with, with Germany trying to or West Germany as it was, but is there an incipient sense of Germany exploring a, a, an identity which became much clearer in 2006 here? In other words, and I'd be interested to see in, in listeners who have spent time in Germany either side of the fall of the, uh, of the wall and reunification as to whether there was an added sense that the players were, were carrying the German identity uh, in a way that was particularly problematic uh, still at that time and that came to a fruition uh, in 2006 where, where football seemed to be a way in which the German flag could be waved without any sense of, of history bearing down upon it. Um, it's just a kind of sub-story there, but maybe there was something in that, I don't know. They didn't have any problems waving the flag being German two years later, I suppose. They, they were very, very confident and, and at peace with themselves through that. But, Is but it a not, football in Germany, not in Germany. Not in Germany. Yeah, no, yeah. that's fair enough. That's the... Only across the, the way, I suppose. But is it a footballing explanation here? Two World Cup finals in succession, um, host nation, a um, lot of expectation, but not a lot of football would have been played together over the last mm. two years. Very unlike today, even a host nation would be playing friendlies, you know, coming out their ears, Nations League and, and, and whatever else, just to keep things kind of ticking over and, and what have you. Um, they won't have played a lot of meaningful football together in that time. The manager is under pressure um, for reasons of style by big name, you know, West German <laughs> icons yeah, like Paul Breitner and, and, and whatever else. <laughs> Um, and it's just it's just a, a a big weight of pressure maybe bearing down. In addition to that 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 norm that I've spoken about, um, I look at Italy as I said two years two years later that they 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 kind of scrambled. Italy in this case the better team in the first half. I think it's probably fair to say the two best chances, but nothing nothing really came about until the second. Um, and our friend Rob um, Hagret and. 
who doesn't That's escape it. most of the blame here is Lothar Mateus, who did not cover himself yeah. in, in glory at all. He really kind of, um, I think, starts it uh, for want of a, um, a better primary school phrase, but he, he, he does. He, he, <laughs> he sets that chain reaction going. Hegret does not, he, he doesn't do very well, but he, he's put under unnecessary pressure. Um, Italy make the most of it, and, and, and Mancini, and under pressure, Roberto Mancini mm. um, sweeps away. You mentioned Trevor Francis and Cocoms earlier. Rob possibly his first gig on that. I'm not, not entirely sure, um, but he he had been at Sampdoria when Mancini and Viali were yeah. boys. And I think there's yeah. a there's a real um, not quite fatherly pride, but there, there is a there is a bit of pride yeah. in his. He's really too, isn't sweet, actually. Yeah, it's really sweet. So it was Mancini's first goal, and I think his 14th game for Italy. He had a lot of stick. But it's just looking at Mancini before this. He was never a great, never a goal scorer anyway. He was a number 10. He'd only scored five goals the previous season in the league, a full season. Now, admittedly, that's 30 games. Serie A in the 80s when, you know, he had rushed scored seven that season. Top score was 15 with penalties. But even so, uh, eight in all competitions. He's aged 23, but he'd been a Serie A regular since the age of 16. So he was kind of both a young player and an established player. The sound, it sounds like he was getting a hell of a lot of stick from the media. And it was, I think, in um, Jonathan O'Brien's book, which is really excellent about all the European championships. There's a, I think he said, said he gave some kind of gesture to the press. But yeah, I thought I actually found Trevor Francis's commentary really lovely, really kind of quite poignant, actually. It's just so much warmth towards Mancini and goodwill. It's a decent finish. I mean, you're right, Mateus kind of faffs around on the edge of the area, gets robbed by Donadoni, then it rebounds to Herget, who is a bit indecisive, gets robbed again, cuts it back. First time shot for Mancini, it might have done better, but. Um, yeah, I remember, it's funny, I don't have many precise memories of this tournament. For some reason, I remember it being an absolutely huge thing that Mancini had never scored for Italy. Um, if you look at it now, 14 games, clearly it's not ideal, but a few of those are sub-appearances. You should think mm. that's not the end of the world, really. Um, but it kind of was at the time. I think he'd missed a penalty against Sweden a few years earlier. Um, and obviously, out, he was replacing the legendary Belly, who was getting on a bit now, was keeping it kind of marginalised. Um but yes, I have a really precise memory of that being an absolutely huge story. Um, and yeah, what was the Brian Moore's? Was it Brian Moore commentary? The man who yeah, scored has finally done it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a big moment in his career. I don't think he scored again for four years. He hardly played actually. I mean, this is the other thing with that era because there's so many great forwards, and so many number tens. This is pretty much the only tournament Mancini played in. I, he was in the Italian yeah. like, squad, maybe played in the third place playoff. I don't know, um, but. Probably at 23, you think, well, there's more to come, but often there isn't. Yeah. Do, do you think anyone would get away with 14, 13, 14 games as a forward? I don't know what you mean. He, he think... was at a number nine. Would you, would you get away with that today? If you were a, you were a forward player for an for a established international nation with a lot of um, story around you, a lot of hype around you, you get away with 13 caps without a goal? I think my thing is there might be less scrutiny, not more. I don't know. I suppose the other thing is that caps these days, 14 caps will probably come quicker. So maybe it doesn't build up as much. Like Mancini's are four years in and out. I, I don't know. I, I think I, a maybe, difference maybe is... Be a maybe you wouldn't be a regular. I don't know. I think a difference is that Italy would set up and would be happy with a 1-0. So they, 
their whole kind of you know, footballing ethos was about winning 1-0. It's before the kind of rise of Serie A and that famous first day on Channel 4 where it was sort of 5-4s and 8-3s and all of this kind of stuff going on. And yet, um, I, so so and Italy yet, would they'd take a 1-0. That, yeah, and yet they are quite adventurous in this game. They do press they hard as a But I know what you mean. But ultimately, even at Italian 90, when they were a very good side at home, they still actually depended on the 1-0 a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I take your point. It's kind of, it was so hardwired, I guess, that it took a long time for that. that I think the, the, kind of the problem with it, system. I mean, Italy do produce a lot of number 10s, but the problem is when they look up, they seldom have more than one other player in front of them because they they don't go in for the overlapping fullbacks as much, although we did see Maldini doing it in in this match so they always seem to be short on numbers because you know the catenaccio is called catenaccio for a reason you lock up the back first and then you think about what we're going to do going forward now i mean that is a cliche and it's probably honored as much in the breach as it is in the reality but i think that that kind of helps but the whole you know the rules are different we we the games are played on different pitches it's it's almost impossible to take a player and say 13 caps without a goal then, 13 caps without a goal now. But, you know, that's always a caveat if we were talking about absolutely anything to do with then and now. So, yeah. Um, but, of course, I think Mancini has that that advantage is that he always looked like an international player, didn't he? <laughs> he had that oh, yeah, sense of belonging um, in, a, yeah. in a way that they're yeah, <laughs> getting this game certainly doesn't have a sense of belonging awesome. at all. We talked about pace earlier and this kind of snail pace that was um, in evidence throughout the game. All of a sudden, this goal changes that. You have Pierre Litbarski ferreting around with great skill, by the way, on the right-hand side, trying to create something. It's almost as if it was the 91st minute of the game. Almost as if, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. This was, you know, nil-nil. We'd all accepted that. These are the two best teams in the group. <laughs> we'll move on and, and, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just use that as a platform shit what has happened i better try and make something happen all myself and all of a sudden you have this kind of energy um west germany don't take too long to get back on level terms as it happened um nascent television coverage we we don't see why <laughs> has given um an indirect free kick um inside the box um but it's because Walter Zinger took too many steps. This, an archaic throwback, um, or seemingly anyway, um, to the, I remember even as a kid going, well, uh, how does how does this get counted? How, how many times did, did the keepers mm. get away with taking too many steps in the run-up before kicking the ball? Um, but um, this, not, not on Keith's watch. Was penalized. Not on Keith's watch. It was absolutely um, on every single movement. Um, and and the, the West Germans got that, that that free kick in the box. And and I mean, Andy I, Bremer, I suspect, not for the, the last time, um, yeah. scored. I suspect what happened, and we used to see it a lot um, live, although you know this didn't appear on Match of the Day. And remember, in the 80s, we were fed a diet of highlights much much more than live matches live matches were few and far between on television but when you went to the match you you saw the referee as they would say having a quick word with the goalkeeper saying i've got my eye on you son then they have a second word with the goalkeeper which says you do that again and i'm calling you 
And is it any surprise that Walter Zenger, five minutes after Italy have taken the lead, is pinged for essentially um, time-wasting? It's not a huge surprise to me. So you know, maybe it was one of those arbitrary things, the I'm in charge here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you for steps. But I suspect there was probably a couple of warnings beforehand. Uh, and that's how it used to happen. How many steps was it? I, I genuinely forgotten completely about this rule. I, I think now, it was two. I, well, I, I think it was four. It said four, but I was yeah. yeah, and I was sort of six. But is it six seconds anyway? I looked. It, it was up six seconds. Quite, it became six seconds, but I'm it, pretty it's quite sure tricky it was four. Finding, yeah, it's quite tricky finding old was, laws on the internet. But the best, I mean, the ones I found did say four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty think, sure yeah, it was anyway. four, but nobody ever took four. But it was one of those things where, you know, come on, lads. You know, you can you can have an extra one there, but you, you you can't do it all the time. And it was it was at a time when refereeing was done much more through conversation. It wasn't done through the issuing of cards and and watching of videos and stuff like that. So we may be given Hackett a bit of a bum rap here. I'm not sure. A yellow card is still a bit of an event in this tournament. Oh yeah, they, not not quite as much as it was in the early ages, but they talk about he's having his name taken. And it's quite, it's a reasonably, but you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Hill does it in the Denmark Spain game, I think. It's a reasonably big thing still. Did they carry forward yellow cards from the qualification matches? Because we. I I, uh, oh, yeah, no, I think Reds did. Brady was suspended for the first two games, Liam Brady, but then he got injured anyway, so he didn't make it. Well, I, but I assume I, that was for a red card. I don't know about I, yellows. I yeah, know. I'm not. I'm not certain, but I definitely heard once, and then I think I heard a second time uh, on one of the matches highlights. Uh, yellow card in the first game said, "Oh, and he'll miss out on the the next one," which suggested to me Maybe. that they were carried forward. I'm, again, I'm 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 not sure. It's uh, <laughs> it's funny when you go back to these tournaments. Um, it's so much has changed, not just in the way of play and the styles and the television presentation, but also in the in the rules of of how tournaments are organised. Um, it's it's barely it's barely the same game. But yeah, Bremer's goal is not said, the greatest free kick. Kind of goes through a gap in the wall, doesn't it? I, I, I was talking to the collector. I don't know if it takes one, but anyway, it's a it's a kind of crap goal, really. Well, and then the he's, he scores. He scored two goals, two important kicks, goals yeah. in finals tournaments, in consecutive tournaments, by hitting the ball at the wall. And you think, <laughs> how lucky do yeah. you have to be? You know, and and all those sort of. Um, German mullets and dear me, there are some mullets, especially on the bench for the Germans. They're all sort of you know shouting and cheering. But Bremer's taken actually two poorish free kicks. One is more mm. of a free kick move, and got two goals as a result. You know how well even uh, even the winning the lottery the 80s, twice. Even the eighty-six semi-final, it's a mistake from Joel Batts. It's another free kick from Bremer, I think. Uh, but yes, you're right. Having said that, he did more than enough to. Uh, Justifies existence, I thought. Yes, yeah, yeah, but he's not the free kick taker that a Platini or a Maradona yeah. was at the time, for sure. Just one final point on 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 this game before we we, we move on. Paolo Maldini arguably should could have won it late on for Italy, kind of ghost in the uh, mm. in the box on the left hand side, hits the side netting. What I found interesting that that, that Brian Moore takes his time to. Establish who it is that's that's set the <laughs> shot, and um, again, no names on the back, of course. Um, but again, that that lack of familiarity, even for the absolute you know 
kings of of, of, of commentators there. There's a couple involved in those those early games. Um, it is just not that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, familiarity that we're, we're, we're so so used to. I mean, commentators would be all over every South Korean or Qatari that that, that, that that's playing in a uh, kind of big tournament game. Do you think there was an element of surprise? He was checking himself that it was actually <laughs> it was Maltini in, in, in the late stage in the game. A bit of well. that. An Italian left back absolutely bombing into the balls. There, there, there might be something, uh, but he, yeah, um, he, he does he does take his time. Anyway, a point of peace. Um, Beckenbauer remains under pressure and um, they move on. The other game in Group 1 the following afternoon um, in a kind of rainy Hanover from what I could um, mm. make out. Rob was Denmark-Spain. Um, the bogey team. That, that's, that's all the way through Barry Davies' um, commentary and, 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 and the build-up to this game as well. We mentioned it in our preview that Spain had done for Denmark and Mexico. They had knocked them out of the European Championships in the semi-finals two years before that. Um, and whether it was revenge or whether it was going to be continuation was, was seemed to be the theme of, of, of the build-up to, um, to this particular game. But Spain never really looked out of control. No, Spain beat Denmark 5-1 at Mexico 86, but they dominated this game more than that one, without question, in, in my judgment. Denmark, as we said, were just a bit tired, a bit old. Five players over 30, yeah. uh, plus some new players who weren't that great. People like John Hilt in midfield. Jan Heitz was OK. Fleming Poulsen was and certainly became a terrific mm. centre-forward, but they had, still had doubts in goal. Charles Rasmussen. Um, Spain weren't an amazing team, but they just had a bit too much quality, probably exemplified by Michel, uh, the Real Madrid midfielder, like, who, from everything I've read, was a really arrogant prick, but that manifested itself in a really good way on the pitch. I used to love him as a kid. I thought he was just a fantastic goal-scoring yeah. midfielder. Scores a really, really nice early goal after 1-2. Uh, Laudrup gets a very nice equaliser, but Spain are just a better team. Michel wins and then misses, has a penalty saved. Um, and then, I suppose, they would, I mean... Sometimes, and I, I find this really interesting, like it happened with Frank Lampard's ghost goal. Sometimes there's an obvious hard luck story that people don't bother hanging on to because they know ultimately they've mm. been outclassed. And that happened in this game when Butcher Grainer puts Spain 2-1 two, up with a shockingly offside goal. Like to modernise it's yeah. shockingly offside, but even at the time, you have to remember the rules slightly different. Level was off then, but he's still, yeah. like, he's miles clear. Like I'd say it's at least two yards. Uh, it's still picked up by the commentators. Um, and then um, there's a really good free kick uh, by someone whose name I've completely forgotten, Gordillo, but it's a bad mistake by Rasmussen. Oh, it's a nonsense. Yeah, it loses. That's a nonsense. When I say really good free kick, it's not. It's It's a sweetly struck free kick, but... Well, it's like it's, it's like someone kicking the ball. Uh, it, those flyaway balls you get from a news agent. I mean, it can, yeah, it can it's not like a really kind of hung in the air. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the go the goalkeeper um, who would be replaced, we'll talk about it next week, um, was 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 not good. Let's be honest, yeah, yeah. Denmark would, would would pull one back, um, but and they almost Danish, they almost did close. Yeah, Elkia had a shot blocked in injury time, I think, by Michel, but um, it was a flattering score. Like, Michel and Butchergrade had good chances to make it four one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just it confirmed all the kind of pre-tournament fears I think for Denmark about yeah. how that team had just expired essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about but, the real highlight of this game, Rob? Exactly. 
Um, so <laughs> this is in Barry Davis's book, and I've read about it, but I hadn't seen it before. So at half time, uh, John Hilt, I think, which was replaced by John Jensen, but there was some kind of mix up, and they thought Sieverbeck had gone off, um, and he hadn't. And just before, like about five seconds, just as the ball's going into Bacero, who then passes it to Butcher Grano to score, you can just hear really faintly in the background Barry Dove say, Give us a hand, who the hell's gone off? And then suddenly he picks up <laughs> Butcher Grano, ah, it's 2 1 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it, it, he talks about it in detail in his book. I forget the detail. What There was a reason why it had been mixed up. But anyway, it's just very funny to hear um, someone who's normally so suave and composed, Barry yeah, Davis. Yeah. I mean, actually, so, I, I like the fact he doesn't swear, though. Give us a hand. Who the hell's gone off? Even though he's not effing and jeffing. He's just angry. Um, yeah, that, was my, that was my highlight of the game. He should have said, I don't know, Jeff. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought I thought he was a sub, Jeff. <laughs> in, in those days, everyone just tried the cold veneer of like, yeah. we don't admit to any errors. Or for, and he clearly didn't realise it was audible. But it, I love also the way he just seamlessly goes to Butch Grano's goal as well. Even even in a moment when he's shambolic, he still his class still comes yeah. out. I, I yeah, it's, just, it's the switching of the voice, isn't it? That that eloquence yes, exactly. just switched back yeah. one. So it sounds like a London cabbie and, and the, <laughs> the, 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 the back of it. Um, and then back to this um, smooth as silk um, commentary for the commentary for the game. He, he really he really was the doyen. Um, shall we move I, on? Well, just oh, sorry, oh, quick okay. comments. Just a quick comment on yeah. Butragueno, if I may, is that I think it was was it said of Filippo Simoni? What one of there's two brothers. I Filippo think, Simoni. Yeah, Inzaghi. Yeah. That's right. He was born offside, and mm. um, I, I get the feeling with Butragueno that he was probably born offside as well. So um, yeah, the, the the goals offside, but he scored lots like that, and yeah, the finish is is very cool, very calm. Uh, looks looks every inch the kind of finisher that that he was, and of course many goals were offside in those days. Not just before VAR, but with much more vulnerable, uh, I think, uh, referees. And it may offside well be the case, it, yeah. although I'm not certain, it may well be the case that this was one of the last tournaments in which the linesmen were full time, if you like, referees who got drafted mm. in. Um, because they were senior figures and because, you know, they, they wanted to stay in a nice hotel and they were put forward by their associations. But I think there was a lot of, of concern that, you know, the last time they had run the line was sort of five years previously because they'd been refereeing the kind of Yugoslav FA Cup final um, two weeks earlier. And so you, you did get more of these controversies and for all of the nightmarish vision of of var uh we we know that but there were an awful lot of offside goals at the score particularly in tournaments i suggest probably because the lines officials were not full-time linesmen and vice versa i know a goal about this all the time but it's worth looking at nicola berti's disallowed goal at italia 90 like he is about half a pitch on side against england yeah. just one other quick thing camacho camacho just for half time elkia gets away from camacho who tries to stop him first with his feet and then with eventually legs him up with his hands. But he ended up, just come actually dislocate his own shoulder, um, which was quite an amusing uh, bit of karma, I suppose. But yes, yeah. that's all I got on this game. It looked like yeah, it looked like on. a game between, it looked like a third place playoff in the group, even at that stage, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Okay, so the next afternoon then in sweltering Stuttgart, we have this game that I, I guess... Um, 
many were amused by when the the, the draw took place in London <laughs> against the Republic of Ireland. Um, there's a lot of history there. You may be aware. Um, off the pitch, not so much on it. Not not really a a mm. fixture that, that 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 really generated. Um, uh, well, it would now because they they never stop playing each other over the next um, few years, and, and and for for good reasons and bad in games that would be remembered. Um, Jack Charlton, of course, um, quite a a strong link there, and the fact that the, pretty much the entire Republic Island certainly starting eleven were playing um, in the British Isles anyway, um, either in, in, in England mm. or Scotland. Um, so. I think you, someone said in a preview show that looking at this game, it had the, or the, the makings of, a, of an FA Cup tie, um, or at least a, a club near the top of the English first division against a club maybe struggling at the bottom. Uh, and my goodness, for a large part of the, the opening section of this game, this does not look like a game of international football. Um but again, can we just tap into that that sense of expectation and pressure? Um, someone should have told Brian Clough there was any pressure on this game because he, he was <laughs> very confident going into it. I think it's probably fair to say in the studio, Rob. <laughs> yeah, but Clough was in the ITV studio and he's basically... Um, there were a load of doubts on both sides. Um, but Mick McCarthy had been doubtful for Ireland and when he was in the, announcing the team, Clough basically said, this is great news for England. Uh, really pleased he's playing basically because he's shit. He didn't say as much, but um, yeah, which was quite amusing. Uh, Liam Brady, who was part of the team as well, I think he was in Stuttgart, wasn't mm. too impressed because he missed out through injury and suspension. Yeah, it's just it's interesting to draw on the teams because I've forgotten this in the preview. England only bought three centre halves to the tournament. Dave Watson mm. of Everton, who you know, of course, Gary, Mark Wright, and Tony Adams. Terry Butcher was broken his leg, which was a huge blow. But that's interesting because Wright and Watson were doubtful for this game. So there was a hell of a lot of talk beforehand of Gary Stevens playing centre back. I want to ask you two, as Everton Rangers fans, did he ever play centre back? I don't recall emergency? it. I don't um, recall yeah, it. Apparently, he had played Since... there in a, like a warm up game the Thursday night. But yeah, it's interesting. Viv Anderson would have played it right back. As it turned out, Wright was okay to start. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was interesting. For, for so Everton, Pat, Pat Van Den Howe, Pat Van Den Howe would play centre half. Gary Stevens would never go across and fall back to centre half. It would be Van Den Howe. Three centre halves in a squad, albeit twenty men, but that's interesting. Yeah, Sunis used him very fleetingly, and by I think very fleetingly, I mean once. Um, a couple of years later, in a um, a trial back three. Um, um, at the start of the season, in anticipation of the October arrival of Oleg Kuznetsov, who would, who would obviously only sign after the the Soviet season had had ended, um, and Sunis was looking to go to a, a three at the back, and he wanted Stevens in there, but no, um, it didn't work. Not especially when you had an engine like like he did have an extraordinarily fit football, so yeah. by British standards, you know the bleak test would be. Um, an absolute um, sure thing in pre-season um, so no I, it just shows you the limitations of of the 20 man squad yeah doesn't it? absolutely um, not... um, but, but, just, but England didn't have, have a wild much to... just a couple of quick you, you couldn't have, have a wild card no so for example I noticed I'd never really considered Gascoigne as a live option for this tournament but I noticed he was in the PFA team of the year in 87 88 so mm. he was clearly becoming the player he obviously will go to Spurs subsequently. Yeah, I'll just quickly run through the team. So 
England had two changes from the famous 4-1 in Yugoslavia in qualification, both in force. Butcher and Trevor Stephen were out, which meant uh, Mark Wright and Chris Waddle came in. So the team was a, what looks a very attacking 4-4-2. Uh, Stilton, Stevens, Wright, Adams, uh, Kenny Sansom. Pierce was injured, but I think Sansom would have been first choice anyway. Uh, Waddle ahead of Stephen. Robson, Neil Webb ahead of Hoddle. Um, John Barnes, obviously, Beardsley, Lineker. Ireland's team, I'm going to get something wrong here, was Packy Bonner, Chris Morris, uh, McCarthy, Kevin Moran, and Chris Hewton. Midfield, Ray Houghton. Paul McGrath playing in midfield with Ronnie Whelan. Tony Galvin ahead of Kevin Sheedy, but that might have been an injury thing. I'm not sure. It, Sheedy was sub. Uh, up front, Aldridge and Stapleton. Just a quick, a quick, I always love this thing about Sheedy. Before, Charlton apparently was really competitive. Jack Charlton played cards. This is this is a story in Simon Hart's Italian 90 book, which I'd also recommend. Before the game, he's playing cards with Sheedy. I think it was Hart's on the coach in the game. And he pops down. Let's find this. I think right down. Yeah, he put the Queen of Spades down. And Charlton apparently just looked at him in disgust and said, if you don't pick that up, you won't be sub today. And he just he wasn't joking <laughs> at all, apparently. So anyway, Sheedy was sub and got on. But yeah, I've always found that story quite amusing. Yeah, I think they wanted to play Tony Galvin for the high tempo game they were playing. Sheedy is not a man for a high tempo game uh, uh, in the way that Galvin was. And that that kind of manifests with the goal, actually. Which Galvin plays a part in as well. If anyone wants to talk about it, it's a great goal. It didn't didn't take long (laughs) in coming. Um, Can can we just set this up and just listen to. that, that moment for all the elite sophistication of the European Championships and international football <laughs> summers, as we would come to know, um, this was something out of a third round in January. Right have gone right across to collect, and Sansom struggling. And Ray Houghton! Magic moments for the Republic of Ireland. And the English manager, Jack Charlton. Yeah, this is the most um, <laughs> of its time goal in, in, in British football, I think. And there was a lot of chat in um, the World Soccer preview um, about England, but can you clearly apply to Ireland as, as well? Not got a lot of experience playing continental football because of the, the, the ban which is now what three years in um yeah. is this going to have an effect are they kind of cut adrift gents this this looks like nothing nothing um that the yeah this this wasn't remotely this wasn't resembles it wasn't resembles anything that we've seen, even in those first two games. With clangers and they have mistakes, but uh, there's at least an ability to you know, pass to a teammate that, that is reasonably close beside you and and and, and walk things around and be patient. Um, there's there's no patience here, and the ball barely touches the the ground. It's just a, either a comedy of errors or, or or real agricultural stuff. But it works. What I would. What which I would say is that within it, there are little bits that are really good. So more and Kevin starts with Kevin Moore and free kick, which he sort of punts almost like a kick for touch, but it's weighted mm. really perfectly. So Wright goes across with I think Stapleton. Gary Stevens already there, and they can't quite leave it. It's not long enough to, so it ends up they go both challenge, goes up in the air, Galvin hooks it across, then Sansom has that stretch and slices it right up in the air. But from that moment, Aldridge does well because he leans into Adams early. So he gets up early. I mean, Aldridge should be winning headers above Tony Adams. Exactly. So they're just little bits that are really good. Nods it across. And then Houghton's header is actually really good. It's like a looping header back across the shield. I know, it all, I mean, it is a, 
a hideous goal. But within it, there are three bits of actually quite well-measured play, I think, um, for more yeah, and I, I, free kick, Aldridge, and I, particularly, obviously, the head of him out. Yeah, I mean, in my memory, I had sort of England more or less throwing the ball into the net. But as you say, Rob, looking at it now, it's Keystone Cops defending, if that's not a 100-year-old cultural reference rather than the 30-year-old ones tend to make. But... Um, <laughs> It, Aldridge's header is is a good header because not only does he bully Tony Adams, but he also directs it to the man who he probably knew was coming in there because I think they played for Liverpool that year, hadn't they? Yes, uh, they did. together. That's right. yes, yeah. yes. And they'd and, also played at Oxford. They'd also played at Oxford yeah. together. And Houghton Houghton is is making the extra man in the box there. He's a midfield player. He's not a, a kind of wide forward or anything like that. He's an authentic midfield player. And he gets up to support play that was on the other side of the pitch. And then calmness under pressure, the exact opposite of England's defenders who were panicking under pressure. He has plenty of time to see that ball. And as a cliche has it, he picks his spot and he just nods it cool as you like into a wide open space in the far corner so, so from Ireland's point of view um, they will say we're going to pressure, we're going to try and win the ball high up the field, we're going to try and induce mistakes and then when we get a chance we're going to be calm in our finishing and that's exactly what they did. To me that's the kind of goal that doesn't happen if Butcher's on the pitch not just because he might actually do something but more that just he kind of just radiates a certain calmness and authority Adams talks about it a lot in his book Adams was 21 at the time how much he missed having Butcher alongside him, um, and they are very frenetic. And I know it can, may, you know, maybe it can happen, um, but I do think certain defenders have that ability just to not only influence the game. Obviously, Butcher would probably be throwing himself towards it, but just to just to calm everyone down. Particularly in a game like this, you know, Butcher would have played in a million games like that in England and Scotland. Um, not always yeah, calmly, it has to be said, though. Rob. Well, no, that that's true, but I think it's more about just his authority made up. Yeah. That's a very fair point. Yeah. He would be head by walls and stuff. But it took him a long time to recover, didn't it? The first half, just a nothing, really. Um, just um, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. the fault of England no in the game is not conceding a bad goal, I don't think, because no, you can do that, especially in the first matches. But it's all those chances. And obviously, Bonner has the game of his life, really, in, in goal. And they ride their luck a little bit. But, do, you know, do you know what England like should score. Do you know what I'd like to know is what point in the game Bobby Robson thought, oh shit. Because when the goal goes in, yeah, you'll yeah. think we'll score enough. And as a second half, it's just a slowly unfolding nightmare where they keep yeah. creating and missing chances without playing brilliantly, actually. A lot of the chances come from the old bit of inspired player. There are two brilliant passes I'm going to talk about later. Um, but a lot of it is just like kind of long balls to Lineker and stuff. And in a way, Clough was actually right about McCarthy. I know, you know, I kept the clean sheet, so McCarthy had the last laugh. But actually, Lineker does escaping pretty easily on a number of occasions. Um, he just doesn't finish. Yeah, which he had done through the qualifying uh, It, it struck me in, I don't know about you guys, but it struck me in the previews just how much was placed on him. Um, people kind of slightly wondering what happens if he doesn't score. Because England hadn't scored many in the build-up. He's got loads in qualification, but not many in the friendlies. But also just how highly he was regarded. He was seen as, along with Brian Robson, as England's jewel in a way that, and we know he was a fantastic player, but I, I thought more might have been made at the time, given what they've done for Liverpool of Barnes and Beardsley. But actually, it's, it's all about Lineker and Robson, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but this goes back, anyway. sorry, Rob, this goes yeah, back yeah. to our, our international football as a, as a 
TV show that we pick up two years later, and yes. um, he he is it's just, it's just it's punctuated by finals. That that that's that's the continuous yes. story, really. He's the golden boot winner two years. He is therefore we would kind of do it now, much to a much lesser degree because we were, we're so acutely aware of um, the, the, the various players that are there and the, the, their attributes. But who who shone the last time we watched this mm. TV series? Yeah. Oh right, yeah. okay, it's, it's Miroslav Klose or whatever. We we expect him to 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 do the same. Um, but he clearly wasn't right. Lineker was clear. But no one knew not. that at the time. Yeah. No one did. There was talk talk for the talk for the game about a knee injury potentially keeping him out. Well, nobody knew he had something far more serious. I think it was a kind of hepatitis. Um, it be. And he misses. I counted like five chances. Two missed. Three saved, I think, but none of the ones that are saved. Aikenek's okay. The biggest chance is in injury time, which at first glance looks a miracle save from Bonner, but actually is a complete shambles from almost everyone involved. But we'll, we'll get to I just want to talk two of the so England missed loads. Yeah, Beardley actually probably misses the best chances. One, yeah. he scoops over after Lilik has a shot saved. Then he creates the classic Beardley shuffle on the edge of the area, makes space, then puts it miles wide. Yeah, sorry, Gary. Well, it's just a quick one before we lose Lineker because he he was that most seductive of creatures for the English psyche, actually, because he was the prince over the sea. He he was yes, playing exactly. in Barcelona and he uh, was and going he, to yeah. come and he was going to rescue England. He was going to solve those technical issues, our inferiority complex against continentals, which showed with uh, the other side of any issues with self-esteem, which was an overblown sense of entitlement on the other side that we're going to win, you know, and, and and stuff like this. So he, he embodied uh, all of those things. And of course, he, he also looked like Gary Lineker and he was there speaking Spanish on the telly, which, you know, was is always sort of likely to incite feelings of both jealousy, but also kind of uh, amazement that an Englishman can actually do this. So he was all of those things in one. He turns up and as we now know, he had the hepatitis, but uh, the expectations were extremely high and he didn't quite deliver, unlike, you know, he, he did throughout most of his international career, to be fair to him. Mm. Yeah, I had a look. He was the second high scorer in La Liga in a crap Barcelona team. He's got 20. Playing wide? Hugo no, that was later under Cruz. Was it this later? Was under, this was under, um, I forget now, the guy who won it in Euro 2008, I think. But anyway... Hugo Sanchez scored about 50, but well, 34. But anyway, so yeah, he had a good season. I just, a couple of passes. I mean, there wasn't much quality in this game, but I thought there were two brilliant passes. One from Robson, just flicked the outside of his left foot, bouncing ball over the defence, and Lineker runs through and then slices it wide. It was a really quality pass. And also, it was a slightly underrated pass of Robson. Then Hoddle comes on and plays pretty well, comes on for Webb after an hour. And there's an extraordinary pass where Adams walks out of defence, which is quite nice, plays a one-two, and then... <laughs> Absolutely wax a square pass huddle, uh, like hip height, just past the halfway line, up uh, past the centre. I don't know what he's doing. He just leathers it. But Hoddle, he's got like a split second, twists his body, adjusts, and does this kind of up, volleyed up and under, which had anyone else done it, you think, well, that's just lucky. But actually, it's weighted so well the, and improvised so well. Lilica runs onto it and half volleys it wide. I mean, that one's a difficult chance, but I thought Hoddle's improvisation, having had the ball basically booted at him. Um, from 10 yards away, it was so good. He actually played pretty well when he came on. And he has, his free kick leads to the biggest chance of all, probably in injury time, when yeah. it looks a miracle save from Bonner from Lineker's header. But what you see from behind the goal is Bonner's positioning is diabolical. He's like yeah. three quarters of the way to the far post. 
Lineker's header goes in the centre of the goal and it looks a great save because Bonner has to come across. But actually, uh, we're recording this not too long after the um, Champions League final. It's not dissimilar yeah. to Lukaku's header that Edison saved. Mm. Lineker, that, that's the biggest chance of all, I think. Lineker's, you know, a, a firmer header and he, he's got so much goal to aim for. Um, but yeah, Bonner's an interesting one. I know we've had Paul Doyle on before who thinks he was the weak link at Ireland's that year team. So, you know, he was a fort in 1990, 94. And this is his most famous game. And he does make some really good saves. And that ultimately, I mean, who cares? Ultimately, he saved it. But it was kind of a, it was a weird kind of save, I thought. I don't know what you, if you thought that as well. I, I would I would agree. I mean, it, Lineker should make it all academic, let's be honest. Um, there's a huge part of that mm. right-hand side of the goal just gaping. <clears throat> the, the cup tie illusions, they, they work both ways. And certainly the early part, if not the whole of the first half, it's just... Is garbage. They, they, they would outdo themselves <laughs> those two teams two years later in, in, in Sardinia. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the second half isn't, but it, it's a cup tie in, in, the, in the the less pejorative sense. It's open. It's end to end. It's mm. a bit frenetic, of course. Uh, you get the, the, the one team, the kind of favourites, um, who are becoming increasingly panicked as the game goes on to try and um, you know salvage something, really making most. But you know, Ireland had the chances uh, as well. Shilton had to be yeah, alert more than one occasion. So it's it's uh, tips- uh, we're talking about we're talking about KG Robin and especially in the Italy West Germany affair and um, being. being slow and pedestrian and look a point guys listen the point's fine both of us will be yeah. fine we'll do all right we'll get out of this group um whereas that's very very different certainly as, as this game goes on becomes really stretched and as a spectacle um entertaining still the, the quality when it matters as, as gary said is it's, it's not really bonner it's it's the, the kind of poor poor finishing but a lot of the build-up play is good and if this wasn't ireland and this wasn't um, kind of celebrated so close to home, I suppose. Would this be looked on as a, the disaster that it, it, it kind of has, or has that just been um, has that been worsened by what followed in the the, the, the the two games? Because if this was a kind of World Cup tie against a Cameroon or something like that, you see, right, it's, it's a poor result, but look at the chances we had. It's just, just one of those just one of those afternoons. Um, it's it, it happens in football. We, we, we kind of pick ourselves up. I mean, I don't know how you assess this all these these years later um, because England are still by far the better team. It just, just didn't fall. Well, yeah, what I find interesting is England had some grim struggles with Jack Sharp's Island. Usually they always ended one all. England never played better against... Or England never created more chances against Ireland than they did in this yeah, game. yeah. Even the one-alls, you know, Italian United had that many chances at all. I remember that game at Wembley in 91, which was just grim. I, I was very good at smothering England. Um, I think I think, I think it's a bit of everything, isn't it? The fact that it was the first time, the fact they lost, the fact they subsequently went out. Um, so like Mexico City, for example, they were slaughtered when they lost the opening game to Portugal. And I don't think they created as many chances as in this game, but it became part of a happier story in the end. I suspect there's an element to that. I, I, what I find interesting, you alluded to this is that they hadn't played Ireland much any other home nation would have been really familiar because of the home international championship they played Ireland I think they lost to Ireland in, they hadn't lost to Ireland since 1949 and in that time they played seven games most recent was a friendly yeah. in the mid 80s so there was it was just it was slightly weird to Jack Charlton complicated as well the familiarity um I, yeah, I think I one know. element. I was trying to think of a, I'm trying to think of a comparable game at that time. We're kind of familiar with them now, but I, I just can't really. 
Sorry, Gary. Is it is it was there a comparable game? Um, and you'll know this, Martin, the famous sort of Joe Jordan match, Wales against Scotland for that uh, uh, eliminator, was it for the... Yeah. Yeah. Because that was, again, all the players knew each other and mm. nervous. But weren't they, weren't they equals, Very though? much a cup tie. Would they not be seen as equals, roughly? They would Largely, have been. Yeah. yeah, they would have been. And it's, yeah, it, it's the, the, the unique... Um, personality of British football, I suppose, the way that it's evolved and uh, has been that you you get these you get these derby matches um, um, with more than a, a fair share of grudges, both for non-football reasons and for football reasons. These these guys knew one another, and all of a sudden, one group are completely elevated in advance of this game than the the, the rest. And how how do you think that that that's going to go? And and to be fair, in a lot of the previews, and this is the worst opening game England could have. If England yes. played Ireland at the end, then mm. I, I think it's a completely different complexion, completely different kind of sense of pressure. Um, but this, again, I keep coming back to it, this is a dodgy, potential cut upset it's a on the horizon. Because you, you could just, it's away from, you know, away from home at some um, up-and-coming uh, physical um, kind of team from the, 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 the lower echelons and that's how it can turn down. A couple of, couple of uh, very quick things. Yep. Just want to say, I feel like, don't be too harsh on Ireland. There's, there's, there are moments of quality. There's a lovely dipping volley from Whelan that tips onto the bar. The other thing that struck me, more through reading the highlights actually, is how aggressive their pressing was. It yeah. sounds mm. kind of very modern. They weren't a defensive team. They were just a rudimentary team. Rudimentary. It's absolutely rudimentary, yeah. And a lot of England's chances come from, particularly early on, obviously they get deep as the game was on human nature, but in the first half in particular, it's just straight balls, really, straight long balls, yeah. and they're pretty high. Um, and even though Ireland, I had a look at their record, they'd hardly conceded a goal, so they qualified a bit tight, then they won eight out of nine subsequently, and I think in that time they'd only conceded two goals in nine games, so they clearly could defend, um, albeit a kind of aggressive form of defence, pin the opposition back. I mean, there are all these stories, there's some hilarious stories about John Sheridan being repeatedly warned, do not fucking play a one-two on the edge of the area, or I'll have you off, I don't care if it's the second minute. Um, but they knew what they were doing, and they did it pretty well. They did have some good players. I mean, McGraw and Roddy Whelan is a good right, guy. Yeah. It's, 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 well, we, we mentioned this again in, in, in the preview, when, when you look at that England team, and there's loads of attacking talent, loads of creative talent. But where is your where's your metronome? Yeah. Who, who who do England have in the the, the middle of the, the park, um, like those two that you just mentioned on on the opposite side, Rob, who are just going to keep control and keep a slightly yeah. deeper position um, for for safety, but can see the pitch and can can just kind of direct that because there's a lot of a lot of players bombing forward, a lot of energy, a lot of um, uh, Hustle and bustle, as well as, as some obviously gifted creative players, but it's, it's that that player Wheeler. who's completely. No, it's so Wheeler. Wheeler. I feel like Wheeler's a bit historically underrated. A very smart player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that but the but the Irish. I was going to say the Irish approach is to spoil first and play second. Um, oh yeah, and England's England's high tempo game sort of played into their hands in doing that. And there was just one point that I wanted to add, really, uh, which comes back to the FA Cup kind of an analogy that you've been drawing upon, Martin, which is I saw a, a, an excellent kind of webcast, really, which was interviewing the likes of Sheedy and Aldrich, but Mick McCarthy, who's always value when he's talking about the, the game, 
I think he was the one who said that as soon as the draw was made, you know, in, in dressing rooms, shared dressing rooms and on the pitch in the, in what were them first division games and in Scotland as well, um, you know, the Irish were sort of looking at the English players. They were not, a lot of them were not Irish, but they were Ireland players. <laughs> but they were looking at the England and said, we'll see you in Stuttgart. We'll see you in Stuttgart. Oh, we, we'll see you there. And as soon as that go, goal goes in, I'm sure, I'm sure that that England were, ha, players had a sense of here we go, here we go. This is what they wanted. And then Bonner is on a uh, and it's confirmation bias, of course. In this, he's having one of those days where even when he gets it wrong, he subsequently gets it right. Mm-hmm. And it was just a a perfect storm. And I suspect looming, looming in the back of the mind as England strove for that equaliser, which would give them a foothold in the group, was the fact it was the Dutch next. So it wasn't just a bad first yeah. match; it was also a bad second match. You know, yeah, so, you don't have a, you, you don't have a. Well, we've we've got the maybe the, the group minnows to come. We've, we've suffered a yeah. uh, disappointing defeat, but don't worry, we've got the full seeds to and, um, to to come next and get it back on track. But, and just Rob, one other you... one other point, just to to make sorry, Martin, before I finish uh, that it, in terms of of the tournament and where England were and second favourites and stuff like that. I always think it's worth looking at, at who reaches the final because we know in a final anything can happen. And the team that reached the final were the USSR, and we'll come on to them in a, in a moment. There is no way that USSR team, for all of its organisation and its concentration and everything else, is a is a better, uh, certainly starting eleven than, than England. So England did have a real chance they did have a real chance of making the final here. And what? the cards fell against them with injuries and with Lineker and so on. But this was a real opportunity. There are other tournaments where you think, oh, you know, England were always going to get beat against the first decent team they came up against. But not this one. Not this one. What I would say, I, I, I agree with you up to a point, but I just keep coming back to Butcher and that defence. Without no, yeah. never, right never. 24, never. Adams 21. Adams is nowhere near ready. But, but I, I can I can understand that even David Lacey, who's always a very kind of sober judge of it, well football and specifically England, you know, one of the few when all the shit was going on around Bob Robson, you could just rely on to give you a sane opinion. He thought England had as good a chance as anyone, and I this before the tournament, obviously. And I I get I get why people thought that way, definitely. What we saw here also is the first signs of probably the first signs of worry about John Barnes with England because yeah. he's on the back of an astonishing season with Liverpool, like genuinely astonishing like that QPR goal is one of my favorites of all time and he kind of does nothing really he just looks a bit lost Beardsley also I Beardsley's in England career maybe that's the thing for another pod I wonder if the focus on Barnes and Waddle underachieving partly hid a bit of underachievement from him as well certainly post 86 and I love Beardsley he was a beautiful player and he had his moments of course like I remember that goal from the touchline against Poland was it Poland under Taylor but in this tournament, I mean, he this tournament, the story of this tournament is Lineker, this game, Lineker missing chances, but Beardsley misses the best two, in my opinion. Um, so, so I feel like a big harsh now. What, what, what I always used to, what I always used to say about Beardsley, and you know, I'd say this when he was playing for Everton as well, when Everton fans would complain, is that if Beardsley was at his best for ninety minutes, he'd be Maradona. 
there are very few players who have yeah. a ceiling as high yeah. as Beardsley with his yeah. creativity, with his game-changing ability, who, who didn't go out of games at times, who, who could be played into, into sort of blind alleys and end up sort of, you know, winning a throw-in. But um, at, his, at the top end, and this was what was frustrating, at the top end, he was a, an absolutely top player who could win matches on his own. But very, very few of that kind of player are consistent, if you like, uh, even across 90 minutes. And, of course, the, the real geniuses, the greatest players, are, are consistent across uh, a whole tournament. And, and that's what, uh, that's what the, the very, very best it could do. Hmm. On you go, Rob. I've, I've got a question in a minute. But, um... No, I was, gonna, I, was, I was just trying to point, sort of point to you, say, go on. <laughs> yeah, but, okay, there, there probably is a pod in this, and Beardsley and Waddle, um, and Barnes, sorry, um, the, the most famous English examples, but there are there are many. This is a team sport. Mm. You need to slot in somewhere where you feel comfortable. You need to have the chemistry right with the players around you. That's why club football is, is so important. And some players really, really do thrive on environment. They thrive on consistency and the, the regularity of, of, of training and, and, and players and combinations and, 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 and home grounds and, and, and whatever else. Home ground and that, ju- that jump from, into, from, from club football to international football is, is massive. Not, I don't think necessarily just in terms of technique, but in terms of mindset, in terms of being able to say, well, I'll play wherever. And I will adapt. I can adapt. So I, I, how I play for my club, not necessarily how I'm going to do it now. And I'm aware of that. And I can take on different instructions and this different environment. Oh, I've never met him before. I've never played with him. This this doesn't phase me. Um, I, I feel at home. Whereas some players just 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 cannot. They are, especially the big fish in small ponds. Matt Latissi comes to mind. Or is that just what he wants me to think? Who knows? Just <laughs> the, this, the, the exceptional talents when they feel comfortable yeah and it's a team sport it's about chemistry it's about just getting combinations right and i was surprised actually rob how often england went long and and yes this particular game especially with the forwards they had yeah i think that plays into um and I, i see it close to home i see you see quite a lot when a team is warmed you're in a battle you're, you're going to get a battle here. Sometimes they lose their nerve and they give the opposition what they want. Yeah. They, 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 yeah. they try and play, they try to fight fire with fire. What does that do? It brings the game down to that that kind of level. Instead of saying, that's nice, we're going to keep the ball and see see, see what you can do. Is that, is, Why did yeah, they go sorry, long? No, no, they kept, the, only, the only target man they, they, they had, um, they of course didn't start with, and I know you, you felt that that Mark Haley in the preview, um, certainly McIlvany's preview, was eviscerated at, 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 at one point and certainly wasn't particularly well well loved or, or, or well respected. And and David Lacey was critical of Haley later on when Graham Taylor had, had pressures for, for him to bring him back into the fold around 1992. Um, and I wonder, with the exile, you, you mentioned Lineker being the, you know, the, 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 the prince from the continent coming back and being that sophistication, whether there was this just this, we don't want to be that target man, little man, very rigid, very rudimentary 442. He resembles the past. We're already insecure about our place in, in, in the game um, mm-hmm. as it is because we're not allowed to play, you know, 
in the Continental Club football, um, did Hately just, in his style, resemble what, what English football fans maybe felt kind of ashamed of and, and wanted to, to, to break out or maybe jealous of other clubs and other countries having um, something a wee bit more mobile and, and sophisticated. I, I don't know. So it's a remarkable, I appreciate I'm very biased. Yeah. Um, but even at this point, he's... He's won the league you know, in Monaco a, this season. He had a great season with, with Monaco in 87-88. Um, and he, he was more than just he was more than just a target man, let me assure you. But um I, I just wonder whether that just represented something that the English literati in football really wanted to shed as quickly as possible at that moment in time. I wonder if it might have been too early for that attitude to take on. I don't know, but I do think Bobby Robinson had a slightly kind of not love hate relationship, but something I can't think of the phrase for with tall players because after this tournament Haley doesn't play again under Robson but he doesn't play till Taylor calls him United 2 but Robson does have a look at others Mick Harford plays John Fashion he plays games Steve Bull who's slightly different he wasn't really a target mm. man but you know he was a big strong battering ram um, yeah I don't know it's interesting um, I, I, and Haley comes on towards the end weirdly Haley comes by the time Haley comes on they're probably playing more football or trying to um, <laughs> so yeah confusing in that way they've settled down um, yeah yeah, there is a counter-narrative, though. The counter-narrative is that England had gone through that crisis of kind of confidence and um, who are we and what are we doing in 86, where they lost mm. uh, to Portugal, wasn't it? We've already mentioned it. And then the kind of players... Again, yeah, the players got and together and said... We, this is how we want to play. Um, scored three goals, Lineker's famous hat-trick against Poland, and then went on to to be uh, to be beaten by you know the greatest player ever uh, with the help of some uh, poor officiating and a, a brilliant goal. And we're actually a little bit unlucky to lose to Argentina in '86. They then gone through a qualifying. Uh, group where they played very well and had excellent results. So I don't think I don't think the players were uncomfortable and I don't think there was a, a lust for a for a big centre forward. What there was is is what later became the kind of Shearer and Sheringham, uh, an arrowhead at the top, albeit Lineker's different kind of player to Shearer, and then Beardsley dropping off with support wide and it just didn't work against the unique challenge that was presented by Jack Charlton's very organised, very together, uh, limited, but um, nevertheless extremely disciplined physically and mentally. Uh, Ireland side. So I, I, I think the narrative was that it didn't, it didn't work against Ireland. And then, of course, it begins to unravel because obviously Lineker is not well and, you know, they're looking at a man who's ill. They can almost certainly see that uh, in in and around the hotel. And the confidence drains away. And then you've got Hullet and Van Basten running at you in the next match. So, you know. And yet, for well, all that, and I, I agree with pretty much all of that, for all that, if England won 3-1 and went back to Ireland, based on the balance of play, I mean... Yeah, um, yeah. Just shows, could, which could easily could, could easily happen. Which could have easily, yeah, absolutely, easily and happened. I think, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Anyway, we should move on. Probably, we should move on very, very quickly. Just bullets in my mm. head. Kenny Sampson did not impress 
when I watched this back. Was he in in, no. in trouble in at that that point? Yes, because George. I mean, I'll pass it to Gary in a minute. Because we'll know George Graham had already started to buy players to move him on. They bought Winterburn and Dixon the previous year. Winterburn was playing right back at that time, I think. But it was kind of basically he was getting on a bit. But what I would say, and this is slightly before my time. But growing up, I was always kind of aware of Sampson being seen as like more sophisticated left back, very good footballer. Mm. He also struck me that he was in the PFA team of the year all the bloody time in the eighties, more than pretty much anyone, even Brian Robson, I think. Um, so you had Pierce emerging, but Pierce was injured. Uh, Tony Dorigo was in the squad as backup. Yeah. I suspect Sampson would have played anyway, but his career was definitely starting to wind down. I think he, I think uh, Graham sold it. He's already sold. Coventry, maybe, or was he about to, or to Wimbledon or somewhere? But anyway, yeah, Gary will know. Yeah, I, Kenny, Kenny Sansom, and uh, you know, I don't, I'm not saying this to be deliberately controversial and clickbaity. I, I have a, a problem with quite a few English fullbacks who enjoy tremendous reputations and loads of England caps because Ashley Cole is another one when I could never see what they did except block crosses, you know, and occasionally they would play the ball. In field, you know, you compare them to the fullbacks of today, or even the likes of Tony Dorigo, who was fantastic in that season that Leeds won the the uh, first division. Um, I just don't think you got enough of them, uh, enough out of them going forward. Which means that when they do make a mistake in their single most uh, valuable asset, which is no nonsense defending, it stands out more. Now somebody's going to show me that. That you know these these fullbacks have got great assists and you know played in in winning sides, but for me he the upgrade when Stuart Pearce came through was absolutely enormous because we had a threat going forward. He was just as good a defender and probably better in the air. A very quick bit of context. So at this point, Santos was twenty nine, going on thirty, but he started really young. So again, a lot of miles on the clock. Yeah. Uh, so he's almost uh, he actually he went he was sold to Newcastle this summer, which I've totally forgotten about. Then he had a year there. They went down, went to QPR, went to Coventry. Um, I completely forgot the other one to do Castle. So there you go. Anyway, the final game um, of the, the opening round, um, of course, in England's group, that uh, England Islands group, that, that group two. And in Cologne uh, that evening, the, the Netherlands uh, against the USSR. And the USSR in Mexico had thrilled, they were very open and they were very vibrant and effervescent and um, well they <laughs> had learned the lesson hadn't they really uh, they got, got, got them nowhere and we, we would rather win and it was going to be uh, Lobanovsky pretty much, it's, it's more important to win um, uh, not wise to attack, attack at all costs um, we, we mentioned the players um in, in the previous, certainly the, the Dynamo Kiev players, um, they had talent to burn. And on the bench for Holland, as we intimated in, in that preview, a, a Marco van Basten um, maybe picked up some niggler injuries in, in a friendly against Real Madrid for, 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 for Milan. Um, mm. So, so no, um, it's Johnny Bosman, um, uh, the tall Ajax striker who would who would start up top. Um, with Rudhulet, who not exactly shot either, so there's quite a, a focal point in, in, in that Dutch attack. 
um, John O'Brien mentioned who, who's almost hyped to the point of irritation, and I'm I, I, <laughs> so familiar with that now. We're so familiar with that now just because of the, the saturation of coverage and and the, the hyperbole that, that, that just is almost like a kind of daily occurrence in the build-up to, to international tournaments. Perhaps this is the genesis of, of, of that, I don't know. Um, it didn't really happen for the Dutch Rob at all. Nothing really seemed to click, and USSR seemed very, very comfortable in a in a 2-0 winning then. Uh, 1-0, but yeah. 1-0, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Netherlands had most of the ball, played some decent stuff. The side made a lot of saves, but most of them were, I think all of them were saves he should make. Yeah, um, yeah. A couple of good saves from Koeman, long-range stingers. Um, I just want to talk a bit about the Dutch team. I love the balance of this team. So it's kind of four, it's what we would now call 4-2-3-1 because Hullet basically had a free roll. Um, Two centre-halves are Koeman and Rijkaard. I mean, that's a total football bingo, having those two as yeah. centre-halves. And they're walking for Koeman in particular. Um, and they do play some nice stuff, but you're right. The um, US are defending very deep. Probably the best chance, I think, first of Hullet. There's a nice bit just for our time when Koeman kind of walks forward to the edge of the area, plays a square, almost like a square through ball to Hullet, um, who dummies the defender and then too close to Desaev. Um but yeah, it's just a classic, you know, in those days we'd always hear about like Eastern European teams, how mysterious, it's just a classic sting really. USSR do nothing in the first half, start the second, Igor Belanov, who had won the Ballon d'Or in 86. I just quickly, it's interesting also talking about things that are common now. Him and Oleg Protosov play as what we would call split strikers. So it's three, I think it's basically a 3-5-2 mm. or a 1-2-5-2. But, but um, Belanov plays really wide, almost like a right winger. So there's a lovely break, one first break from, I think, from a Dutch corner when he just skins Van Tegel and it's majestic and Van Broeklin makes a really good save. Then a few moments later, another break, Rijkaard walks forward and actually this time loses the ball. Rats, Vasily Rats, who you'll remember, pings this raking crossfield pass to Belanov on the right, kind of waits his moment, bit of support, then flips it back across the kind of line of the area. Rats comes on, it bounces a few times, just thuds it back across Van Broeklin into far corner. It's a really good goal. It's not spectacular as a France goal in 86 and not as good, but it's still a really good finish, the precision of it. And you can almost yeah. hear like the cannon as he, he makes contact. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting one because I'd always remember this game as Netherlands battering the side. I don't think it was quite like that. There were a lot of. I think you, I, I, I would agree they had most of that possession, but I just didn't think the nothing was really clicking when it mattered, and the USSR just seemed they seemed secure it's, and comfortable in what they were there it, to do. They they, they, they worked exactly. quite hard, but they it's, knew exactly that this this was going to this was going to work. And, and John O'Brien talks about Hulick getting frustrated and moving out to the left because of the attention of um, Alexei Mikhailchenko, which yeah. made me laugh. Now, <laughs> Mikhailchenko is uh, he's, he's working extremely hard he's doing that that job not something that, that, that I would associate with him in, in later years he was he was told once at Ibrox to warm up um, in the dressing room and he said no I'm, I'm, I'm fine so no I think you should warm up and he stood up got the hair dryer um, just moved it around him and said I'm I'm now warm um, that, that, that was the extent of Miko's um, preparation um, by that point of his career but, he, but he's right they, they were just very, very functional. Um, and was the phrase not, not a great scorer of goals, but a scorer of great goals written for <laughs> rats? Because any time he pops up in, 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 in these memories, it's it's with utter quality. And it's just such a good goal. Yeah, it He's almost it like is. a Yossi master, isn't he? Sorry, Gary. Yeah, yeah well, uh, 
so you don't need to read as much Jonathan Wilson as I'm sure all three of us have to see an Eminence Grease in the in Lobanovsky when the, the camera pans to him on on the touchline. And I think he, he plays a very, very 21st century game here because he yes. understands that the Dutch are going to have possession. So give them the possession. Don't try and win it back all the time because you, you're playing tournament football. You're going to run out of legs at the 70th minute. Only two substitutes, I think, in these matches. Um, and you're definitely going to run out of legs later in the tournament because that's where your ambition lies. You've got a, a great goalkeeper, and Dasayev was a great goalkeeper. Mm, and you're going to say to the Dutch, well, you can shoot all you like from 25 yards. We're back in our man to save them and work on Dutch frustration. And you can see that they're getting frustrated. It's not just Hullard. You can see it in Koeman. Koeman has a couple of shots that, that you know... The, the, you're not going to score if you, even if you're Ronald Koeman, you're not going to score one in a thousand of those uh, attempts. And he just, he, it's just a very canny game. And then when the chance comes, Rats, his technique is absolutely superb hitting that ball. I'm pretty sure first time, wasn't it? Across the yeah. keeper, arrowed into the far corner. All those Dutch shots ballooned over the bar. He hits it along the ground, a daisy cutter, and Russia come away with it, or the, absolutely not Russia, the Russian Empire, <laughs> come come away with a 1-0. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We'll see you in the final. Before I make a couple of other points, in his book, Jonathan O'Brien says, this is, must be one of the greatest 1-2s of all time. Now, I want to ask mm. you, is it a 1-2 if Belenov has more than one touch? <laughs> I know why he wants to... To make no, it I agree as, completely. As beautiful, yeah, but, totally. uh, yeah. No, it's brilliant. The cover between them, they cover what, 80, 90 yards. I'm just, I'm, yeah. I've had this discussion before because um, we'd, when I was doing a Guardian Joy of Six on one twos, I'd done six that were just immediate wall passes. And then I was living at, funnily enough, talking about Jonathan Wilson, I was living at his at the time. And like really late before I had to find it, he persuaded me to put in a famous Sunderland goal against Newcastle and involved Gates and Gabbiadini. And in a kind of excitement and rush, I totally forgot that that wasn't a one-two. It, well, it wasn't a Casker one-two. There were two touches. So anyway, the comments have a pelter saying, hang on, you've defined the one-two at the first one as blah, blah, blah. So yeah. Um, to me, it's a one-two, but not a wall pass. I think they're can, two yeah. different things. And wall pass is a subset of the one-two. The, the point you made about the uh, Lobanovsky is really interesting. Basically, it's what used to be called a Mourinho masterclass, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Nobody, nobody was calling it a Lobanovsky lesson, thankfully. The other thing I would say is that I think throughout this tournament, there's a really interesting kind of discussion between the balance of style and substance in the Netherlands, because they're remembered as one of the great teams. And I'd argue a lot of that is because the style is so persuasive. They, you know, they did so many brilliant things, but also rode their luck. And even in this game, you're absolutely right about the Koeman shots, which look spectacular. That's why was jumping to palm over, but they're actually pretty comfortable saves. Um, and I'm not blaming Koeman for shooting from there because, you know, he has an absolute cannon. It's scored 20 goals in the league. Um, but it is interesting because it you you remember moments like that. But actually, when you scrutinise and you think that's kind of not a percentage. It's not, I don't even say it's not a percentage shot. It's just not as close as it made to look by the kind of drama of the thunderbolt and of Desso of jumping. Because it's, it's a comfortable enough save for him. And I think that, that's a recurrent be throughout this tournament. Yeah, that's well, yeah, what really I feel, interesting. There must be better options with the players in front of Kuman when he's having some of those shots. There must have been a better option than having a go from 35 yards. 
what I would say, I absolutely love the idea of Koeman and Rijkaard at the centre-back. Like, everyone had stoppers. The Dutch had starters, basically. And yeah, if you look at the, the famous goal against um, West Germany, which we'll come to, that all comes from, that's where Koeman really comes into his own. That classic path through midfield that takes two, three people out of the game and suddenly the pitch is wide open. Um, so I suppose, that, yeah, with anyone, like, you know, decision-making is never going to be perfect. Um, and this was probably a day, you're right, when the kind of, downside to that system were exposed a bit because even just down to the goal if you watch he's not going to do much but Rijkaard's just sauntering back when Rat scores he's the one who's dispossessed right upfield and he's just sauntering back really now whether it made a difference I don't know but it's kind of you know there's a certain vulnerability there because of that I mean I'm sure we'll come to this when we do the next round and you know the Dutch come up against England but something I always think about and I think about it more the older I get is just the aesthetics of the human body in space and Reichard, Koeman, Hullet, Van Basten, just to watch them move over the ground. And there's others as well in that Dutch team. They I seem to be made of different <laughs> DNA to the rest of us. And it's just such an, a, a, a delight to see them yeah. move. And it, there, there is something, you know, your, your starter instead of stopper, there's something about a centre-back doing that in that part of the field where they're always, even in the game today, those pressing game, there will be times when they've got sort of five yards of space. And maybe it's my age or something, but when John Stone does it now for Manchester City, it kind of makes your heart jump that there's an Englishman who can do it. You I know, know. No, no, totally. It's fantastic. And, um, you know, you, you really see it. It's taken us 35 years to find one, but, you know, the, there there he is doing what, what Reichardt and Koeman just did as their day job. Uh, but what a joy it is to see them. Just on that feeling of just being a bit flat, the Dutch, and again, some some hype around them, of course, lots of talent. Um, going back to my point about international football, at a quick glance, I don't think there's anybody in that, that Dutch team that has played in an international tournament until that evening. Mm. What what impact does that have? Again, with all the talk and all the weight and all the excitement that must have been for qualifying, what, nine months maybe before before we, we actually kind of get underway there. Um, no one there has, has played in an international tournament, a big I, summer event. And that, that has I'm, to... Yeah. Even on you're missing, he's, he's missed out. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, am I just there being is, too, too simplistic? No, he, you're no, right, Martin, and it play it plays into your point about the fact that it's a you know season X uh, of international football tournaments, and we just don't look, especially then, we didn't look as to what had happened in between times. But with the Dutch, I think there is such a signature way of playing. There is that phrase "total football," which I admit is honoured as much in the breach as it is in the reality. But as soon as at the time, as soon as we saw those orange shirts, as soon as we saw that, that a centre-forward could pop up uh, in open play in his own penalty box and play a 1-2, uh, no matter how many touches there were, with a midfield player and stride forward, as soon as we saw that the centre-half had scored 20 goals, it sort of links into the kind of iconography, if you like, of, of Dutch football, certainly for anyone who grew up uh, seeing Cruyff sides and Ajax uh, as well as the Dutch national team. So there's probably more of an excuse of us expecting the Dutch to come out fully formed and be 
total football players. And to be honest, they they sometimes did more than they had the right to do. So there's something in that, but there's also something in pulling on that orange shirt and those amazing fans with that sea of orange, yeah, was which was so unusual in those yeah. days, um, that, that you're thinking, ah, you know, here's part, part five of, uh, of the glorious sort of yeah. history of Dutch football in my life. So more of an excuse, but yeah, objectively, hard-headedly, you look at it and think, well, why were they favourites or second favourites? Well, yeah. Well, Renus Meikle's he, he didn't miss and hit the wall. Um, maybe the pressure was too great, he said. We're merely an outsider. The expectations are set much too high. Um, Hulett missed the boat. He had a free roll in this game and he couldn't support the team when they needed him. And as a team, we were too soft, not winners. Wow. We were losing the game. And in the second half, we only had four fouls. That's highly <laughs> unprofessional. Um, you wouldn't get too oh, many of the national managers boy. after... After a disappointing start to come out and say, is he my best player? Yeah, yeah, you're right, he was shit. Um, <laughs> but but Mikkel's, I guess at that stage of his career, who did he, who did he have to, to impress or, or, or plus eight? Were, or, they or listening? Was... Were they listening to him? Because in Holland, the only one opinion matters, and that's that of Johan Cruyff, surely. So they yeah, were, well, that's, yeah. it's what Cruyff thought that mattered, surely. Whom Renus Beekle said he's not won anything of note yet as a coach, a title in Holland that's a Boy Scouts league. Um, <laughs> Superb. So t- typically, the reaction there. Yes, yeah. indeed. It was, it's, it's nice to see these continuations is, of, 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 of tropes uh, throughout, throughout the ages. Um, anything to add, gentlemen, before we, we, we wrap up on, on match day one? Just that. England and the Netherlands losing set up an absolute humdinger. I think it was a Wednesday afternoon. Um, yeah. A draw kind keeps them alive, just about a defeat, and it's pretty much over um, it is all right. within within four days. Four day tournament, all that two year build up, you're gone in four days. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's all. Just my my last point is that here we are talking about game day one and there's jeopardy absolutely everywhere. And whilst I accept that, you know, that that tournaments need narratives and these days they've got the individual players sponsored and you can't have them going home straight away. Going back to my proposed structure for a 48-team World Cup, that would have... Uh, groups of three, and there will be jeopardy immediately. And um, there is nothing like immediate jeopardy for, uh, for creating excitement. We, we we don't have enough of it these days because of corporate sponsorship and star players. Uh, you know, the, the television sales need the star players. But, um, yeah, isn't jeopardy so exciting in sport? It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's what we all need. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Cheers, Martin. And Gary. Well, yeah, next yes, thank you. Next week, um some of the <laughs> sorry, some sorry. of those <laughs> some of those big names just roll on. Um but but Rob's right, there is one match of great significance and it really is um do or die for the Netherlands or England. Talking about star players, Marco Van Basten spoke in twenty twelve about how he felt that evening. After the first game I thought I'm going home, but he's not going to use me. But then Mikkel said, I can't promise anything, but I need you. Need you, he did. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.